Okay, so Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 to 23. Um, let, me, let me just read that, and then we'll get a little caught up from where we're... Chapter 9, verses 15 to 23. Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not enforced as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way he sprinkled with blood both the tent and the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost every thing is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So... um, We'll call this little lesson power in the blood, right? And I was thinking too, this comes up a lot. The question was, gee, how are people saved in the Old Testament? How are they saved in the New and all that? That's the wrong question to ask because I think that puts man first. <laughs> the right question to ask is, how did God preserve for Himself a worshiping community throughout the history of redemption? What has God done to preserve for Himself a worshiping community that would acknowledge His greatness, proclaim His excellencies. What has He done to do that? And how has He done that? So that puts God first in terms of... Why? Because as we'll see, God is about doing something. God is about revealing Himself. He's about revealing who He is, who the, how the persons of the Trinity relate to one another. Um, this church is going to get drenched in Trinitarian thought if, if it's the last thing we do, right? Because it's got to be. Um, so I think that helped me in just sort of thinking that way is to stop asking the question, how did man get saved in the Old Testament? How did he get saved in the New Testament? That's the wrong question. It's sort of secondary. It follows from the first question, how does God preserve for himself a, a worshiping, representative, image-bearing community? Okay? Um, just to get caught up, because it's been a week, and Todd had the last lesson. Um, so just, you know, every time an animal... I'll just share some thoughts with you to get us where we are in the text now. Every time an animal was sacrificed... And blood was used in the Old Testament cultic ritual. The members of the worshiping community were, or should have been, reminded of the grace and mercy of God. Every time. Because it was not the sinner who died. See, the sacrifice of an animal reminded the person that death is very becoming for sinners. It's appropriate. And it's right. And yet the sinner lived, right? In a sense, the death was conviction of sin. It was a way of convincing or convicting the sinner of their sin. See, God's decreed that, this, that, that deceivers deserve death, right? And that arrogant people deserve death. And that gossips deserve death. And that inventors of evil deserve death. And that foolish people deserve death. And that children who disobey their parents deserve death, right? That's all Romans 1. So animal sacrifice is kind of a graphic reminder of what the conscience tried to ignore, I think. Animal sacrifice is a vivid, careful reminder of what the conscience tries to suppress. And, and there's more than just the individual aspect. This is the other way we have to be careful when we think about what God is doing. is Not to think thinking all the time so individually, 
which is a very American thing to do, right? Increasingly so. But what is God doing with a community, with a group, with a with a people that He's established for Himself? What and how is He doing what He's doing? So these things are all touched upon in Hebrews. I think you can see that. Animal sacrifice made worship and long distance fellowship with God possible. Right? Animal sacrifice made worship and long distance fellowship with God possible. Why do I say long distance? Because under the Old Covenant, it was not safe to get close to God. God was not a safe God in the Old Covenant. In a sense, He's still not, right? We, but The question then, how could the blood, right, that is the life of a species, much lower than a human, secure relationship with God? How could an animal substitute for a human? Right, well, the answer is He couldn't. Exactly. It, it couldn't. Not, not in the most meaningful way, right? Uh, the purification made by blood of those animals was in a sense only skin deep. Human skin deep. Okay, it, it purified only the flesh. We'll talk about that a little. It could not purify the conscience. In fact, that's where you left off. And I was a little bit at a disadvantage. I <clears throat> would have, should have, could have listened to the last like 15 minutes of your lesson um, because I had to go upstairs to to go banging on the drum. So, um, I missed that last 15 minutes, but I'm sure that you covered that. You had a tribal response. That sense of, of yeah. yes, I did. Thank you. We did tell him to put his shirt back on. That's right. <laughs> Before you guys came up. Uh, and, and it, so the animal sacrifice provided for ongoing participation in the worshiping community. Okay? Which, which in the Old Testament was Israel. Remember, that's why God set Israel free, right? Why? What did, what did Moses say to Pharaoh? What was one of the first things Moses said to Pharaoh when he showed up, all kinds of 80, at the guy's door? Yeah, why? That's right, specifically, for that very reason. One of the first things Moses said to Pharaoh, let my people go that they may go serve me, and serve and worship are interchangeable in that context. Let my people go that they may serve me. That's what God was doing. He was creating a serving community. And He had a reason for that, right? Because that community would worship Him. I could go even further back, but I won't, and say that you know Adam and Eve were that first community to serve Him. Um, though some sinners died altogether, still, right? There were stoning penalties for various crimes, and, and that's another lesson altogether. Um, Animal life cannot cleanse the conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Right? Animal, animal sacrifice cannot make our conscience sensitive to holiness. So dead works, right, which are sin, they do damage to the conscience. Right? We need to think that way. In a way, there's already damage done to the conscience when we sin, right? We're already showing that there's damage, but we do further damage. Alright? It's, it's like if I, act, if, I, if I act foolishly or I make a mistake... Uh, running, I saw this morning James White tweeted out something. He's over in like 25 below Russia somewhere, and he slipped on some ice on the way into church this morning. He said he tore up his knee internally. Ooh. He's asking for prayer now. James White, he bikes and runs thousands of miles a year. I mean, he's a everything he does, he does with everything that he is. Right? If you followed any of his teaching over the years, or you watched him anyway. So I don't know if he was doing something foolish, but if he did something foolish and he got hurt, okay. Now, if he continues to walk on that and not treat it the right way, it's going to continue to get worse and worse and worse. So we do that with sin. Um, I was thinking that 
sinus congestion. <laughs> sinus congestion is detrimental to pleasurable olfactory sensation, isn't it? What does that mean? What did I just say, brother? What did I just say? Yeah, he can't smell good things, right? He can't smell pie with a stuffy nose and things like that. Sin deprives us of the lovely aroma of Christ. It does. It does. Animal blood or animal life cannot remove the sin and guilt that keep men and women at a safe distance from God. So, again, the Old, cultic, the Old Testament cultic practice is shout, Stay back! Right? Now, when I use that word cult, you know what that means, right? A cultic or cult is a system. It can mean like, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses or whatever, right? It can mean a, a group of heretical people. But it can also, it's also used in a much broader context in all religious ritual as just like a system of religious devotion. So when you read about the cult of Israel or the cultic rituals, you, you know what that's referring to. It's not just referring to, again, you know, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, that kind of thing. Some of you, uh, this is from the um, Transportation of Hazardous Materials, Driving and Parking Rules. All right, the Massachusetts General Laws are one of them. When transporting hazardous materials, a driver must not park within 300 feet of a fire or drive anywhere near an open fire unless precautions are taken to ensure a safe passage. Now, maybe I'm crazy, but I just see spiritual things everywhere. Humans carry hazardous materials called sin, and our God is a consuming fire. Old Testament made provisions for necessary precautions to be made to ensure a safe passage. Right? And the heart feels its distance. And I think that is where chapter 14 of verse 9... Yes, uh, chapter 9 of verse 14 left off. And the contrast with Jesus shows up again, as it consistently does... And it's a contrast that repeats itself throughout the book of Hebrews. Jesus is the mediator. He's being compared to another one, right? He mediates between the hazardous material and the consuming fire to generate true worshipers who worship in spirit and truth with a clean conscience. That brings us up to where we are in, sort of in, in this verse, okay? Where it says that Jesus is the mediator so that they may receive the eternal inheritance. Well, what's, what's the inheritance? What inheritance is he talking about? The scripture says here that he is, Jesus is therefore, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, which is what? What other, well, let me ask it differently. What other terminology have we seen in Hebrews and will see in Hebrews that could be used as sort of a synonym for this inheritance? Yeah, Gary. Here we have no abiding city, but we look yeah. for one to come. That's right. That's one of the ones I had here. City which is to come, which is 1313. Uh, how about the Sabbath rest of 4-9? I think that's a big one. That's part of our eternal inheritance, right? And, and so who are the called? Those who are called. So, so that he could uh, provide for this, they may receive the, the, so that the called may receive the eternal inheritance. And who are the called? Yeah, it, it's us, right? It's it's if you could go back to chapter three, verse one, it's it's the brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling. Three one, okay? It's 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 God's people, it's Christian people. And the text is saying that they may receive the inheritance because a death has taken place. That's what it says. They can receive the inheritance because a death took place. Now we kind of understand this because we understand wills a little bit. Apparently they haven't changed all that much over the centuries and eons. Uh, 
Blood has been shed, the blood of Jesus, which is the life of Jesus, which we're talking about. The Israelites transgressed the terms of the first covenant, right? Which was the covenant God made with them where? Thank you. Yes, on Mount Sinai, right? When he gave them his laws. And their part in the covenant was to keep the commands, right? They didn't. They didn't. And, and, and by rejecting God's law, they basically were rejecting God. Okay? God says that throughout. He constantly says throughout the Old Testament, you've rejected me. And this is where it can get, you know, like much of Hebrews, right? Which is, um, which is why it requires the work that's being given by, by the men down here. It's, 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 it's so... There's so much packed in at times to, to, to such a small area. Um, but verses 16 and 17, the same Greek word is rendered covenant and testament. Okay, The same Greek word is rendered, rendered covenant and testament. So for that particular Greek word, and I don't know what it is, and, uh, but sometimes it's, uh, sometimes it's covenant and then sometimes it's testament. Right? Sometimes it's covenant, sometimes it's testament. And it's not unlike our own language, right? So, if I say to you, I'm going to draw a bath, it can be one of two things, right? I'm going to go prepare a bath, or I'm going to draw a picture of a bathtub, right? Amelia Bedelia. What? Uh, yeah. Amelia Bedelia. I haven't heard that in forever. You, does anyone not know what Amelia Bedelia is? See Kelly after. She'll explain to you. All right. or, or there's a difference, of course, right? There's a difference between beating an egg and beating a person, right? Or, or, or if you say, I beat him in chess. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that, you know, uh, he made a particular move that made me so angry, I reached across the table, punched him in the face, and knocked him over backwards in his chair. Right? So there's, there's two ways you can understand beat him in chess. You, you get a trophy for one, you get arrested for the other. Well, the Bible, likewise, is divided into what we call the Old Testament and the New Testament. But the Old, the Old Testament is talking about the Old Covenant, pretty much, and the New Testament is talking about the New Covenant. So, you can see that there's a, a meaningful interrelation between the terms, okay? Uh, covenant and testament. I, I think Simon Kistemaker does a nice job in his commentary when he explains, you know, like the relationship between those two words this way. When God made a covenant with his people, he gave it to them as a last will and testament. So he made a covenant and he gave it to them as a last will and testament. To make this will valid for his people, God's son died. And upon Christ's death, the will became effective and its wording unalterable, right? You can't undo a will. And that's what verses 16 to 17 are describing. So, verse 15 says a death occurred, right? Verse 16 says a death had to occur because there was a will involved. So, God made a promise that could only be kept by death. What does this hearken, what, what does this hearken us back to in Genesis? This has come up a few times in Hebrews and will again. What event took place in Genesis that talks about this whole covenant death thing? Possibly. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that you know it. It's, it people de- now. I've certainly heard debated, and some of you have too, whether what God did with Adam was a covenant. And, and I, you know, I'm not going to arm wrestle with covenant theologians on that one and get myself in a semantic quagmire. Um, but, go ahead, Ken. You're talking about the flood that he will never... No, no, I'm not. Oh, that, that is another covenant, though, yeah. Well, God killed an animal to, give, to clothe Adam Yeah, I'm going to talk about that in a minute. I, okay. I, I think that's significant, but I don't think it's as significant as a lot of people pour into it. 
And I'll explain that. So don't get okay. don't get too crazy. Yeah. Some, some brother killed another. Where, where did blood take place to establish a covenant? The first time we see it in the new in the old, in, in, in Genesis, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Abraham yeah. Was in the uh, uh, no, no, was in the no. Thought you were going the other way. No. When God said Abraham, this is what I'm going to do for you. All right. I'm going to I'm going to give you make you a father of many nations and blah 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 blah. Okay. Right. And then he killed the animals, cut them in half, and then God Himself passed through those dead cut pieces. Right. That's significant. Right. Because what that's saying is, if if this covenant breaks, let this happen. Right? Death happens if this covenant breaks. Is that where you're going, Mark? No. You, oh, did you have something else? No. Okay. I'm all done. Okay, so let's stand back a bit. Let's get back up to the 10,000 foot view. Okay? I was never under the old covenant and neither were you. And I'll go further and say we should never use an old covenant law to try to convict people of sin and bring them to Christ because the law has no function in that whatsoever for unbelievers as far as I'm concerned. Because first and foremost, the law is written on the heart. People already know, according to Romans 1, that what they do is deserving of death. Now, that's not to say we can't interact with them about moral decisions and the things that they do and why they make those. Uh, but a misunderstanding of Galatians 3 would lead some to believe that we have to preach the law to people in order to drive them to Christ, and that's not accurate. It was for old covenant people. And there's a reason. But anyway, so it wasn't written to us, right? We've been there enough times. Hebrews was written to a first century Hebrew Christians who were once under that old covenant, and some want to go back to it. They want, in a sense, to undo what was accomplished by the death of Christ. In a way, they're contesting the will. <laughs> you know how people do that after someone dies? And they're in danger of trying to negate the will or the testament of God. So, so <clears throat> we'll see where blood comes into this. Uh, but we have to ask, then, okay, so how does it sort of apply to us? Because, I mean, this is common practice, right? How did the original person read it? How do we apply it to ourselves? Because unless we understand the meaning that it had, at the very least, to the original audience, we can't possibly understand what it means to us. You, have to, you, you can't just take the words and say, okay, it meant that to them, and it no longer has the same root meaning. We can just change it and use it. Okay? That's called postmodernism, where people take words and pour into those words new meanings and redefine those words as it fits their particular culture. Okay? That's part of postmodernity, which is ugly and it's everywhere. Maybe someday, if people are interested and really want to hurt your heads, we could sit down and probably a small group and talk about what postmodernism is. Cause it's very interesting, but it would probably bore most people to death, even though we're in it, even though we're all in it, and you experience it, and, it's, and you're impacted by it all the time. It, it, that doesn't mean you would be interested in discussing much about it. But um, So we, we, we need to make sure that we understand sort of the underlying principles of things so that we can then apply those principles rightly to us. Well, I think verses 18 to 22 help us to see how this discussion applies to new covenant believers that never were under the old covenant either. Because that's all of us. Uh, it says that not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. Now, I think that not even makes a point, right? Not even always means sort of... Uh, so, in this case, the first covenant or the old covenant was a lesser covenant and as much as it could not do what the new covenant does, right? Which is it could not do what? We, we, we've talked about it. What could the old covenant not do? 
Yeah, he couldn't purify the conscience of dead works, right? To serve to serve God, he can't can't do that. Uh, so, it, it, uh, but even that covenant needed blood to inaugurate or, or begin it, as well as to finish or, or to make it function properly. So, anytime we read not even, we're making a contrast about something that applies to us now, and we know that it applies to us now because it applied to an even. Uh, it, it applied in an even less significant situation. You know, not even whatever, all right. Not even, not even Todd gets to come to church and uh, just, yeah, in pajamas. Thank you. I was looking for something without getting in trouble. Who said that? I, I'm trying though. I'm trying. I, I, I was, you know. Now we so that word inaugural, right? They chose the word here, inaugurated, right? We know an inaugural address by a president lays out the agenda. Right for what the president would like to accomplish in the course of his or her administration. So, but what begins in the administration is also going to be a daily part of what goes on in that president's tenure. And, and the same is true about blood. Now, verses 19 and 20 describe the blood ceremony, the inaugural blood ceremony, in the way that it was done. Now, this probably won't interest much of us, many of us, so I'm not covering it here, but. There's more said here than is actually said in, in what it's initially referring to. We don't read about some of the details here, like sprinkled uh, with water in, in, in scarlet and wool and hyssop. You don't read that in the original. You don't. You, I mean, you don't read that in the Old Testament part to which it's referring. There's some additional things here. It's it's just more helpful, which actually makes sense because the New Testament does that a lot. Uh, but there's two parties in the covenant. All right, that God, which is sort of represented by the Book of the Law back at Sinai and then and then the Israelites and, and Moses, Moses 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 sprinkled blood of the sacrificial animals on the people and the book right so the same blood bound them to one another in a covenant uh, when we were younger every once in a while you'd run across either a gang or people who thought it was cool make a cut in your hand right become blood brothers right there's a covenant in blood right um, now verse 22 verse 22 indeed under the law almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins this is very important now keeping in mind what blood did in the, did in the old the blood of animals did in the old testament the blood of Christ does in the new testament to a much greater degree and for a much more eternal uh, benefit but again, I'll just remind you, in both cases, God is doing something to have for himself a worshiping community, a people that will represent him, a people that can image him. What God does is a very God-centered thing. Right? God is very concerned with, I think, you know, between Father, Son, and Spirit and their life together in the happy land of the Trinity that... Um, that revealing that and, 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 and acting that out in like a material universe as a further demonstration of what's always been going on between them. Okay? Now, if you want more depth than that, you're going to have to come to the Tuesday night study because that's one of the things we just sort of began talking about. What, what is going on in the New Covenant? What's going on in God's revelation to His people is a disclosure, a God's self-disclosure of what's been going on between the three persons of the Trinity throughout eternity. The love between the persons and how one sort of bears witness to and glorifies the other and how one is sort of begotten of the other. So this, everything you see going on in the New Testament 
in in the Old Testament. Everything you've been seeing going on in Revelation is a disclosure, a self-disclosure of God. That's not... That's not... Nothing of an epiphany in that. Maybe just haven't thought about it in those categories. It's not that profound uh, in terms of its newness. It's profound in the reality of it, right? Mm-hmm. That God is revealing Himself. Okay, are we good so far? We're talking about blood. We're talking about covenants. We're talking about the significance. We're talking about death. We're talking about wills. We're talking about what was done and what was what was done then and what's being done now and why it's significant. Replacing the question of how did men get saved in the old covenant versus the new. Replacing with how did God have for Himself a worshiping community and how does He have one now? And how did the sort of the first one sort of give us a little bit of a preview of the one to come? All right. So, do you think in these categories often, or, or, or have you? And, and like this might sound a little bit, you know, plugging in pieces of the puzzle that weren't there before, or maybe um, sometimes when we look at um, there are certain books you can buy. These are just kind of fun things. You can look and you can see the pattern, but you can't really see it so well until you put these like cheap plastic glasses on that they give you, and all of a sudden the main figure in the pattern jumps out at you. Have you ever seen those? Or years ago in the newspaper, there used to be this thing that they would print where you had to look at it a certain way for a certain period of time and if you crossed your eyes just a little bit, suddenly the thing would pop out right on the thing. But it was there. It was, this, it was there. You just needed a means to see it. Right? But there was something else that was going on. And I think of the covenants that way a lot. Okay, verse 22 tells us, two, uh, tells us one of two important things. Under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Now, don't worry about the nearly everything part. We don't need to know what that means, or you know, what's the exceptions, and you know, why are there exceptions? Just to get what I'm emphasizing, uh, which is also what this text is emphasizing. As I mentioned when I opened, blo- the blood of sacrificial animals outwardly purified the Israelite community so that they could continue to be the worshiping servants of God. God assembled them to be, and again, from a safe distance. Second, the blood was for forgiveness of sins or the remission of sins. There was no forgiveness without it. So blood initiated or inaugurated the covenant and blood provides for its continuance. Blood, 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 all the time, blood. And so Moses was therefore a sort of mediator. right? In verses 19 to 20, uh, basically, as I alluded to a moment ago, a recapitulation of Exodus chapter 24, which is where you see this whole first blood covenant take place. Where Moses sprinkles the blood on the people and the law and the people are at Sinai. It's amazing, you know? If we could see what that was like. <clears throat> so Moses was a, was a mediator as well, as, as is Christ. He interceded with, which is to say he was a go-between between God and the people. And he was so with blood. Okay, Because so, that's a point of contrast with Jesus, right? Who also is that same mediator with blood. He's a blood mediator, right? In fact, verse 21 in the first part of 22 state that blood also purified all the elements of worship. So the blood was put on the tent. The blood was put on the cups. The blood was put on the vessels, the spoons of silver, the, the basins, the seas of brass, the horns of the altar in the Holy of Holies were sprinkled with blood. Yes? After they did that sprinkling for that season, I know... Probably was a daily ritual, right? Did they wash it off after? <laughs> Good question. I, I've often wondered that myself. Whose job was it to go in and wash the blood? You know what I mean? 
Because yeah. uh, whoever did, they used to sing, Did you wash off the blood? Oh um, a hand. Especially when Solomon sacrificed. Yeah. The dedication of the sample of, of the temple was a bloodbath. Oh, yeah. Right? It really was. It was a bloodbath, man. Well, the priest had to wash head to toe and start in the washing. That's true. So every day he went in. Yeah, they must have. They must have because, especially with animals, unlike with Jesus, yesterday's blood is not sufficient for today's sin under the Old Covenant. Right? Yesterday's blood that was shed is not sufficient to cover today's sin. Right? Unlike Jesus. Right? Now, that's next week's lesson. Whoever has that. It would have had to be a priest who washed it because no one else could go in. It was a mess. Yeah. They didn't even have bleach then. They didn't even have bleach. I don't know what they used. They had fuller soap, right? Scripture says somewhere it washed it whiter than any like any fuller soap could make them, which is obviously, you know, the archaic uh, Elizabethan English. So whatever the equivalent is, I don't know what they I don't know what they were translating as fuller soap, right? Mark would know best, right? So. Um, so yeah, I've wondered that myself, like Kelly, often. It's like, what? And I was thinking also, you know, as I was talking about the death of all those animals, the impact it would have on a person. And I thought about there had to have been also in that day, right? People that were visually impaired, people that were blind. They didn't see the death, but with that much blood, what? The smell of blood. The smell of blood is nasty. It smells so bad you can taste it. Yes. It's a great question. I'm going to answer it in a minute. You're, you're right, right where I need you. Excellent. Yes, yes. So, but everything had to be purified because worship was made possible by the blood. Worship was only acceptable to God by blood. God would meet with His people, but only if blood was shed. Okay, the holy of holies. Uh, and, and again, you'll have to be here next week uh, for more of you know when we finish up the ninth chapter to find out about Jesus entering with His blood. And uh, I'll just sort of briefly introduce that reality when I close out today. But if we don't understand the significance of blood sacrifice, we'll secretly always feel that strange feeling we have inside when we sing, Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? We sing about blood, man. Right? I mean, any stranger to Christianity came in and they'd be like... That's why I tell people that if I ever invite them to church. That's right, exactly, right? Uh, if I invite people to church, sometimes I'll say we sacrifice the chickens at about 9 o'clock and we begin the word. I just tell people, you know, just to get them. But we sing about blood. Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? There is power in the blood, right? I think that we'll continue to always learn the meaning of that more deeply and deeply, but uh, minimally, for now, blood represents life. Okay, there's nothing magical about blood. There's been a lot written by people in various sects of Christianity about the miraculous blood of Jesus, right? The literal red fluid of, of Jesus, okay? But Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Okay, so when you think blood, think life. Otherwise, right? I mean, we've all heard this before. Jesus really wouldn't have to die. Just could have been all right. But you know, it's his life. So in the old test, in the old covenant, life was required to atone for the soul. Blood, life, life, blood, interchangeable. Why? So that the worshiping community could be pure. 
although even only outwardly, okay, God was preserving for himself a worshipping, serving community. Now again, the death of all those animals would give us sort of that vivid, sensate understanding of God's wrath against sin. Right? And his desire to have his wrath assuaged. So I think the blood shows God's both God's God's desire to have his wrath revealed and to have it assuaged, right? To have it to have it satisfied. Okay, to have it propitiated. Right? To have his God desires that. And he can do both in one act. Just like he did with Jesus on the cross. He showed both his wrath and his mercy and his grace there, right? And why? So that he could have fellowship with his creation. So that he could reveal his love. See, to God, again, Scripture, we can draw the conclusion that living in loving relationship is so satisfying to God because it images the Trinitarian love that goes on within the Godhead. That God is willing to show what that broken relationship with God looks like. That shows what broken relationship vividly looks like. Is this blood, brother? I can ask this real quick, and I gotta go. Okay. Drum, but um, so, like, the balance between, like you're saying, the brutality, yeah. of it, right? Mm-hmm. The dismembering, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's oh yeah, man. The, the disemboweling. I mean, I killed fifty chickens twice a year. Eat the liver. Eat this. A bucket of heads. Yeah. And got, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. It's like uh, it's huh? like a hundred feet sitting there. You yeah. Know? But like. That was this visual thing that kept bringing people back to the seriousness of this whole thing. Yeah. You think that like a double-edged sword of of Christ's like satisfying atonement, the once and for all sacrifice, like the other side of that is that it pulled us so far back from seeing the brutality of it that like now we play with the forgiveness of sins. Like, oh, well, we... I mean, not we, you or I, but like one could because, you know... It was almost like with the with the frequency of those sacrifices, you're mm-hmm. always being reminded. You're seeing it. You're yep. smelling it. Like yep. you said, there's people cleaning it up. There's piles yep. of stuff everywhere. Yep. And now we just have like, no, he did it. For, so like, it becomes easier for that that more like basic person to just kind of be like. One of the things I'm going to mention. Of a deal. One of the things that I'll mention towards the end, in a sense, and try to work through a little is what God has done for us in Christ is create in us the same conceptual like epistemological spiritual reality that required all those animals to do and even more so what he accomplished in Christ for the born again for the, for the generally born again for those walking in the spirit even because yes we can lose that for those walking in the spirit I believe God by the new birth creates that reality of what happened to us in a way that doesn't require seeing it all the time. You can, but do you think that like another piece of that is there's huge amounts of people that like don't get to that place that just regard it they they have they, they don't regard it nearly with the reverence or the understanding of the brutality. Yeah, and I think that's why preaching is that's why the gospel is necessary. Right. All the time to believers. I mean the gospel is for believers. Mm-hmm. First and foremost. The gospel is first and foremost for believers, not unbelievers. Hope we don't have a problem with that. Okay, you're dismissed. Probably very related to what you were talking about. Is huh? that, you know, sort of in place of that visual, we now have the internal. Yeah, exactly. Of that, mm-hmm. um, and the reminder, and, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so, yeah, we don't see that physical blood. Yes, that's basically what I meant by the born again epistemological yeah. reality. Right, but like idea, I translated that for everybody else. Thank you, and I agree with that. And I, ideally, that's that's what you're that yeah. that makes sense. But like the reality is that aren't there 
isn't there a lot of people out there that just don't yes. really appreciate it for what it is because of the fact that you're yeah. so removed from it? Yeah, I think so. I, I do think so. I think because people are not, for whatever reason, conscious of the gravity and weight of sin. And that's why I do think it's helpful too. And even I do this, right? I mean, not even I, I mean, see, even the Christian. I mean, don't you ever meditate and visually try to picture Christ brutally being whipped and scourged? Do you ever picture his like flesh flying off? I'm going to get gross for a second, so I won't though. If, if nobody wants, if, if but just use your own imagination then, right? Let your imagination run wild, right, with Christ. Um, and again, I've mentioned this before. Picture him on the cross and picture picture your name tattooed on him and the blood flowing down over your name. You know, just get graphic. Even as graphic as you get, uh-huh. right? Like, but the Spirit has to do the work. Right, and that's just it. Yeah. And, and, and the Spirit it. moves and the Spirit does what the Spirit does in various ways and varying degrees. I don't... My, my ultimate answer is, gee, it's a great question. <laughs> it just makes me think of the verse in the New Testament that talks about, like, um, a believer sinning mm-hmm. and just crucifying Christ again. Like, being in known sin, I, I'm t- I don't really know the verse. Okay, well, the, the verse is in Hebrews, and it's in Hebrews chapter 6, and it shows up again in another way in Hebrews, but it talks about those that were going to walk away from the covenant as crucifying Christ anew and crucifying it again. So okay. that's like the extreme okay. the, the, the warning of, of Hebrews chapter 6. But it does count lightly. I mean, doesn't Peter say, you, you, you've forgotten that you were purified. That you were purified. Scripture says, you. it even reminds the elders, be careful to shepherd the flock of God who God purchased with His own blood. Alright, got to move on so we get through this. Um, The why of that, again, you know, to answer Mike's question, that's a hard one to know for sure. Why does some sort of not get immersed in that? And there's a part of me which I have to say a lack of spiritual discipline. It's a lack of having fellowship with God. Why can some people be married, I guess, right, and have a great marital relationship and, and get a lot out of the marriage, out of the union wrought by the marriage, and others just sort of never seem to really be happily married? Both people are married. All right, well... A, they don't recognize marriage for what it is. B, they don't work on marriage. All right? Marriage, and even, even in the best of it, if, if two people aren't always doing it, if two people aren't working at marriage, it's just not all that satisfying. All right? It's just not all that satisfying. Sometimes marriage, for any and all of us, in our most honest moments, would say, this is not a very satisfying relationship. Okay? And that's mostly for selfish reasons. Okay. Um... And I say Adam and Eve learned it. They said, you know, to God living in relation, it, it, it was important. I don't think that this goes to the whole Adam and Eve thing in, in the with God. I think that in some way Adam and Eve. By the way, when I mention that word epistemology, what that means is just a theory of knowledge. How do we know things? Epistemology is a study. Of how do we know? It's, it's, it's not as deep as it sounds, but how do we know things, right? And that's why I talked about. The, the sacrifice of Jesus creates a new knowingness in us all the time, right? The Spirit is in us, always revealing to us the sufferings of Christ, always making known to us the sufferings of Christ every day, right, in a sense, so that it, 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 it does in us deeper than what the blood of animals could do, even through that visual experience. Um, and plus, we have imaginations that can take us further than any image or picture can, right? Our imaginations can go beyond sometimes. That was one of the great... In my mind, one of the, I used to read a lot, I don't anymore, of Stephen King, right? So I would read his books and I would see his movies and the movies left me very unsatisfied. But his books, 
scared the snot out of me, you know? The imagination that he could get in touch with and make you picture things in your mind. I think the Spirit does that with Jesus. But anyway, um, with Adam and Eve, so they, they, they knew that before God was their cover. God was what they had. God kept them protected. God kept them... Now it, they, they saw that something less than God was protecting them. I don't think in any way at all, I don't even think an argument can be made that they saw that as some sort of atonement for their sin. We can see now that in a certain sense, it, it, the death of an animal instead of their death is significant. But I don't think in any way we can look at that in a covenantal way. I know I, I might get some disagreement with that. I don't want to argue about it and push back. I just don't think it's as significant as... Um, I don't personally see it. I mean, this might be a blind spot to me. I do think it was significant in as much as they had to put something on at that point. They, they, had to, they weren't safe anymore. They were put out of the garden and God... But something had to die in order for them to be safe. That much they knew. Something had to die in order for them to be safe. Although, the greatest safety was they were no longer in the garden. And there was an angel, a cherub there with burning, flaming sword keeping them from going back into it. Right? So, um, And some of that is just like me speculating and inviting you to speculate on it a little bit. Okay? It's not... I, I don't want to like have a theological argument about it or anything. It's just to help us think through it a little bit. Um, death is the only thing that can ac- accurately communicate the fracture in our relationship to the, to the Creator. It's God's sign language to the spiritually dead. Or, or death. God's, all that death of animals was God's sort of sign language to the spiritually deaf who don't have ears to hear what the Spirit had to say. Now, to April's question, because I have this specifically. Did the people ever get used to blood and death? Did they haven't grown up in it, right? I mean, they grew up with it from, from birth. I mean, from their earliest memories, they're seeing death, aren't they? And I thought to myself, actually, Kim asked the same question because I was talking to Kim a little bit and she sort of was in the same place. And I thought about this obscure little passage uh, here. Um, no, I'm not going to talk about the prayer of Jabez, alright? It's not that obscure. <laughs> I'm not going to build a whole theology around it like, unfortunately, the writer of that book did. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a travel to the rich man who was unwilling to take one of his own flock, and he took his. So I looked at that verse and I thought, you know what? A lot of these animals were around the people and their families all the time. I wouldn't be surprised if they had names for them. Um, you know, there are people that say, oh, I don't have kids, but my dog is a kid. And I always sort of like shun that in, the mi- in my mind. I don't say anything, but in my mind I say, oh, you lesser being. I said, uh, but, I, but then look at this passage and it, it does get us in touch with something, doesn't it? That all, the, all of the, we have emotional attachment to, to, to animals. We just do. I don't think it's possible to completely erase that. I think that, you know, this, this meant something to these people. These people knew what it meant. I can't repeat that. Um, 
everybody's going to leave. We were just talking about him. We were just talking about him. I was just talking about the prophet Nathan. I just, just, just did. Timing is incredible. You can't, you can't make that stuff up. Um, we rehearsed that all week. So, but that told me something. So even though it's a parable that Nathan's telling, it, you know, it's meaningful because people would know. Yeah, I know what that's like. They'd be close with an animal. So, and they had to kill the best of their animals. Their prize animals. They had to kill. Don't bring me that broken-legged, crippled lamb. I don't want that. Bring me the best favorite animal you have and kill it. Right? So I, I think that... Yeah, That's brother. I was thinking with Adam and Eve, too. I could have taken an animal that they loved every month. Well, Adam named each one. Yeah, that's possible, too. Yep. Yep, they definitely saw the consequence. They saw the consequence, so yeah. certainly related in that way. Yes. I just don't think it was a covenant sealing thing. That's all. Um, C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. I would also say He shouts to us in death. God is shouting something in death, isn't He? There's no way you can go to a funeral of a person and everybody, everybody is experiencing the, the, the difficulty of death. Everybody. And they're all dealing with it in their own unique way. Everybody, before they walk into that funeral parlor, has a consciousness of what they're about to do and what to see. They know there's a lifeless corpse laying there in that coffin. They know that somehow that's going to be them someday. Right? Uh, You can't get away from it. You can't get away from it. Um, And I think God shouts to us in death. It it, it says something to us. I mean, I get bummed out. I, I see a dead raccoon on the road. I'm like, oh, man. He didn't make it across the road, you know? I, I don't feel that way about frogs and as much. I do. I you killed know? an ant last week and I felt awful. Did you? I put it in an ant farm that has red fire ants and I huh? found a black ant in my house. Oh. I stuck it in to see what would happen. They I ate them. genuinely yeah. felt awful. Did you really? But I found another one later on and I just squished it mindlessly. Yeah, right. No, I would do that just to watch the red ants devour it. You know what I'm saying? They buried it and they decapitated it. Yeah. It felt so terrible. <laughs> There's nothing morally significant. It's okay. It's okay. Our Buddhist friends would have a problem with you. You're a, you're a heretic in, in the Buddhist mind. So, now this gives us the stuff we need to more fully comprehend and appreciate the 23rd verse for those previously under the Old Covenant and for those of us who were never under the Old Covenant. Not just to comprehend and to appreciate, but this is key, to, to get us roused up to devotion owing to the grace that this verse speaks of. Okay? So, the copies of the heavenly things were the temples, the vessels, the showbread, the book of the law, all required sacrifice for the reasons we've been talking about. But these copies of the heavenly things were earthly things, material things, gold, silver, wood, fabric, all things of the temple, which was the primary means by which God made His presence known among His people. Without blood, God's presence could not be made known to His people. Right? So, everything in the t- everything had to be. They could be purified and made fit for worship by the blood of bulls or the, or the blood of goats. But again, the Israelite community was sort of only minimally fit for worship. Okay? It served its purpose in that way. Uh, and, and furthermore, the purpose of the Mosaic Law wasn't primarily only to punish and to kill. It was also to magnify the grace of God. The law revealed the holiness and the righteousness of God. The law kept the people safe. The law provided means for God to abide with them. The law was gracious indeed. Commenting on the purpose of the law, uh, Tom Holland writes, while the law, I think this is out of his contours of Pauline theology, while the law 
has brought a greater knowledge of sin. It is. In fact, this quote comes from a whole section he wrote doing a little sort of excursus on the pedagogus, right? Which is in Galatians, alternately translated the taskmaster, the schoolmaster, the guardian of the law in Galatians chapter 3. And he's writing a whole section on that. And he writes, While the law has brought a greater knowledge of sin, it is that greater knowledge that in turn magnifies the bridegroom and that he gave himself for his defiled and unworthy people. That is not denying that the law may have to speak harshly and sternly to the elect community, because it does. But in no way does it attempt ultimately to do anything other than glorify the grace of God. And he goes on to say, a good alternate understanding of that pedagogos, rather than taskmaster or guiding, would be best man. That the law was sort of a best man. And that, that's neat. You could read that. I can't possibly give you all the details on that, but it's really neat. Especially, he says, since John the Baptist, who was sort of the last Old Testament law prophet, right, spoke about the bridegroom and being the sort of best man. Yeah. Well, the psalmist said, the entrance of thy word giveth light. Mm. So it's not all negative. Mm-hmm. It was his tutor yeah. gave a, yeah, absolutely. a path, a light, a lamp unto thy yes. feet, a light yep. unto thy path eventually ended up at Calvary. Yep. So the law came through Moses, one type of media. Grace came, grace came through Jesus Christ. The one pointed to the other, the lesser to the greater. Jesus then is the bloody powerful mediator. I was going to title this the bloody powerful mediator. You know how the British speak, oh, it's bloody great, Till I looked it up and found out that's actually quite derogatory. That's like tantamount to dropping an F-bomb. So I said, man, I can't, what if a brick came in here or something? And I said, we have a bloody powerful city. The people like, wow, this is one vulgar Baptist or something, you know? So, the law came through Moses. Grace came through Jesus Christ. Um, he's the better sacrifice for the heavenly things, the real things, again, of which the earthly things are just a copy. You'll see that again next week. What's meant by heavenly things, right? This is weird, isn't it? This is weird. If you, if you pay attention to this, Christ had entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Which, which, which asks the question of us, does heaven need to be purified? Now, scholars are all over the place on this. They are literally all over the place. Some would say, yes, that's exactly what it means. Heaven has to be purified. Leon Morris, commenting on Colossians, that Jesus triumphed over the angels and rulers and cosmic powers, right, which is a reference to spiritual beings in the heavenlies. Also, by the blood of his cross, Jesus made peace and reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. So he would argue, yes, that's exactly what Jesus had to purify heaven by his blood. But more likely, this refers to the new covenant people and to the new covenant reality. Like the first covenant, the new covenant was inaugurated with blood. Jesus said as much when he shared the cup at the Last Supper. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The people are the dwelling place of God. We are the temple. We are seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. And so the blood of the cross, the life of Christ, is sufficient to cleanse the conscience from dead works to serving the living God as a royal priesthood. So we're sort of, where that temple is being purified inwardly. We can, it can be spoken of as in terms of the heavenly city almost, which comes down. So I don't think it means that literally heaven itself, because then we have to sort of almost spatially, physically locate heaven somewhere. And I think we get a little bit weird if we do that. And more can be said. This is going to come up next week. I don't know who's got who's on next week, but that's going to be touched on some. I'm sorry. Okay. 
But so, let's just close with final thoughts here. The blood of the life, you know, the death of Christ is significant for worship. We know that because in 1 John 1, 7, it says the blood of His Son continues to cleanse us from all sin, right? And then in Revelation chapter 5, verses 9-10, through 10, we have this great worship scene. Um, worthy are you to, And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to Jesus to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures, and, and, and it goes on. But the point being, Bruce Metzger says, in opening the scroll, the Lamb is about to disclose what the scroll means. That's why he's the only one that can open it. He's the only one qualified to both reveal it, right? Just like Hebrews says, God's spoken to us fully now in His Son, right? To reveal it, in short, Jesus does not change the divine plan. He unfolds its eternal and unchangeable nature by His obedience unto death, even death on the cross. So the life of Christ, the blood of Christ, is critical for worship. Cleansed conscience. The debris of sin has been cleared away from the moral path of following Jesus. Right? We can now represent Him. We can image Him, which is God's goal in the, from the, in, the, in the first place. We can image Him. We are the image of the invisible God. Uh, Christ is the exact image of the invisible God. We're joined to Him. And Paul says, you know, Paul's trying to uh, get them conformed to the image of Christ, right? We have a constant reminder of the grace of God with only one act, what we were referring to earlier, because it affects us beyond the skin. All of what God has done for us in Christ is now a part of us. We are united to it. This is hard to grasp, I know, right? The life and death of Christ are no longer external to us. By uniting us to Himself, the Holy Spirit has generated in us a sort of constant awareness of the grace of God in the way that witnessing the death of thousands of animals couldn't. God has done something in us by the blood of Christ, by the life of Christ, by uniting us to Himself so that we could worship, so that we could enjoy God enjoying Himself. We're basically enjoying God enjoying Himself, right? As His people. We couldn't do that without the life of Christ. Propitiating the wrath of God so that we could experience the pleasure of God, right? So that we could experience God's joy in seeing sin dealt with, right? So that so that, that love that God is so interested in could be manifestly made known to His worshiping community. So again, as disciples of Jesus today, if we are and I know we all are, it's because the Father has ordained it to be so. It's because the Son carried out the blood, sweat, and tears, the work needed to accomplish the Father's will, and the Spirit applies that work to us, right? So remember that when we sing this, this power in the blood, or are you washed in the blood? Power to worship, right? Power to experience, you know, sort of the reality of God. And that's all we've got time for. So um, let's have Kelly please pray for us.